shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. What's the thing you've been searching for your entire life? What if the wisdom or the power that you seek isn't hidden in some distant land waiting to be discovered, but it's actually been available to you for thousands of years and you just haven't known where to look? What if the kickstart you've been looking for in your spiritual life is waiting for you? Not waiting in the new and shiny, but waiting in the old and ancient. Waiting in traditions that have been taking place in the church for centuries. In the stillness and the quiet of these traditions, God reveals himself to us. And in the asking, we find out that he's always been there waiting, waiting in the simple traditions of the church, beyond the past, beyond the present, beyond the future. They're timeless. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How is everyone? Good. It's uh, so good to see you. If you're new here, a special welcome to you. My name is Chase. I am the Raleigh Campus Pastor. Real quick before we jump in, it is bumper crop weekend. You guys know what that is? It's when we hand you a brown paper grocery bag when you guys leave. And you're, uh, the intent is for you to take that bag home to fill it up with the needed items. And then next weekend, just leave that by your bumper. And that helps us provide thousands of pounds of food uh, for the people that need it most. Hey, can we just take a second to celebrate something real quick? Something amazing happened this Friday night at our Apex Camp. We were able to celebrate God's love for all of our friends with special needs by welcoming over 300 honored guests to our Apex Campus for our annual Night to Shine event. And that would have not been possible had it not been for over 650 volunteers who said, hey, of anything that I could do on a Friday night, I want to share God's love. So if you were a part of that event, if you volunteered, if you attended, could you raise your hand? Can we give them a round of applause? Yeah, thank you. It was an amazing event. Uh, we had a couple get engaged on the dance floor, which is awesome. We had limo rides. And the coolest thing is, as we got to tell them that not only do we love you, but your heavenly father loves you so much because he proved that through Jesus Christ. We were able uh, to share the gospel with over a thousand people, be that the volunteers or the guests or the parents or the caretakers. So it's just, it's just so much about what hope is all about. We exist to love people where they are. And our dream is for everyone in the triangle to have at least an opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel. So thank you so much for those of you that made that happen. Uh, we are continuing in our series that we are calling Timeless. Uh, so last week we said uh, we live in a world that is obsessed with new things, uh, that is constantly changing. Uh, we all long uh, for something that has withstood the test of time, for something that is ancient, for something that is timeless. And Christianity is really cool because it is an ancient religion. And there are a lot of things that we do as a church that tie us to the past, things that uh, Christians all around the world do and have done for thousands of years. And some of these ancient and timeless uh, traditions are means that God wants to use to give us fresh power in our walk with him. Uh, but many of these things are confusing because we've done them for so long. And we may not understand the meaning behind them, and so we don't benefit from them the way that God intends for us to do. And so uh, last week we talked 
talked about communion, where we eat the bread and we drink the juice. Um, And we learned that it's meant to remind us uh, that Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live, uh, that he died the death that we should have died. Uh, Before he did that, in order to have a relationship with God, we had to live up to our end of a very extensive contract with lots of dues, lots of rules, lots of regulations. But when Jesus lived and died, it's like he walked over to that contract, erased our name, and signed his name in big, bold letters. And so he has done it all for us. He's fulfilled our end of the contract. He's done it. Now we don't have to. And that is a truth that we so often forget. Often we keep trying to earn God's favor. We keep trying to earn God's acceptance. And so we keep trying to achieve what Jesus has already achieved. And so it's really powerful to have a reset moment every single month where we eat the bread, we drink the juice, and we remind ourselves he's done it all so I don't have to. And you guys really took it to heart. Uh, I was receiving text message pictures from all the campus pastors at all of our other campuses, just the lines out the door for communion. So I think we had a record number of communion. There might have been a grape juice shortage or something in Raleigh. So thank you guys for doing that. I hope that you take this weekend's message to heart as well, because we're going to be talking about another ancient tradition that we do every four weeks, and that is baptism. And this is a really good topic to talk about after we talked about communion, because... After you hear the amazing news that Jesus lived the life that we couldn't, that he died the death that we should have, after you hear the gospel, then you can have a handful of common responses to that gospel. Uh, One of them that's very common in my experience is you can hear the gospel and you can think to yourself, awesome, I get a reset or a redo or a mulligan on all the crazy stuff that I have done. God has forgiven me of my past sins, so now I have a clean slate, and from this point forward, I'm going to live differently. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to attend church. I'm going to serve. I'm going to make some Christian friends. I'm not going to drink or chew or hang out with girls that do, and I'm doing that because you start living your life as if you got a do-over with your relationship with God, and you try to stay in his good graces by living a holy life, and some of you might be living that way now. Well, the good news is that's not how God intends for you to respond to the gospel. The Bible says that through Jesus, uh, you aren't just forgiven of your past sins and then the rest is up to you. No, no. Your past sins and your present ones and your future ones are all forgiven. Every sin that you have ever committed or will ever commit has been fully and finally paid for in Jesus Christ. And that's incredible news which leads us to our second response to the gospel. And this response is sort of born in the minds of tricky people. Maybe you have some kids like that that like to find loopholes in the system. Uh, Like the son who went to his dad and said, hey dad, can I get in trouble for something I haven't done yet? And the dad's like, of course not. And the son's like, okay, I haven't done my homework all year and you have to sign this note, right? So tricky people, okay? Well, some people hear the gospel and their gears start going and they think, okay, if that's true, if every sin that I'll, ever for, uh, that I'll ever commit is already forgiven, no exceptions, every single sin, then what are you doing in that Bible study over there? It's party time, right? It's like spring break in Panama City all day. Like I can do whatever I want. It is a free-for-all. It's like me when my wife takes me to a uh, uh, hibachi china buffet. My wife makes me eat healthy because southern food and cholesterol, blah, blah, blah. But within the walls of hibachi china buffet, all bets are off. There are no rules. So I'm having the noodles. I'm having the sushi. I'm having the fried chicken. I even eat the pizza. I have no idea what pizza's doing at a Chinese buffet, but I'm eating that because there's no rules, right? And that's how some people respond to the incredible news of the gospel. You like to forgive sin, I like to commit it. Let's roll. This is going to be a great few years, right? 
Now, of course, this is the wrong response to the gospel. We kind of know that by instinct. But why? Why is that a wrong response? That's kind of a hard question to answer. And you might even know a person or two that sort of lives by this motto, and you know it's wrong, and you've tried to have conversations with them, and you just kind of get stumped as to what to say. We know that it's a wrong approach to life, well, but why? Well, this weekend, I want to answer that question, and in doing so, show you what baptism is all about and how incredibly powerful being baptized can be in the life of a Christ follower. In order to do that, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. It's the sixth book in the New Testament, and we're going to be in the sixth chapter. And this is one of the cornerstone books of the New Testament. It's written by a guy named Paul. And Paul spends the first five chapters of the book of Romans just unpacking the gospel. So for five full chapters, he just lays out exactly what Jesus has done and what that means for Christ followers. And so it's in this part of the book that we get some of our most famous Bible verses. So Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. We've heard that before. Uh, Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the first few chapters are just filled with the gospel and grace and mercy and love. Now, Paul's a smart dude. And so he anticipates that second response to the gospel that we talked about earlier. He knows that after he spends five full chapters going over the gospel, someone is really going to want to ask, if all my sins are forgiven, then why not take advantage of that and do whatever I want? So in chapter 6, Paul tells us why this is such a bad approach to life after salvation. And in doing so, he pulls back the curtain on baptism, and he shows us what baptism is really all about. And I realize that at a church like Hope, we probably have dozens, if not hundreds of people at all of our campuses that have never been to a baptismal service. And so this might be your first time in church. Um, so let me kind of explain what baptism is. Baptism is where a new believer in Jesus Christ, a new follower of Jesus, uh, will get into some body of water. And this could be a river, it could be a lake, it could be a baptismal, it could be a swimming pool. But they get into some body of water with a pastor or a relative or a friend who's already experienced to Jesus. And so uh, then the, their friend or their pastor will ask them, have you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? They'll say yes. Then that pastor or friend will say, well, then it's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They'll submerge them totally in water, and then they'll bring them back up, and we will all celebrate, and we will all applaud. And that's basically it. Here's a picture of me baptizing my daughter just a few years ago. And uh, that is a horse trough. That's what church planning is like up in Asheville. Make do with what we do. And I don't usually hold people up out of the water afterwards, but it is my daughter. But you never know. So if you request me, you could be up in there as well. But now, Paul's going to show us what that means. So read with me in Romans chapter 6. It says this, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Okay, that's the second response. If we have an unlimited supply of grace, why not cash in? Why not use it by sinning a whole bunch? And look at what Paul says. He says, by no means. He says, heck no. In the Greek, it's heck to the no, literally. But why? Listen. He says this, because we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
Now, I could spend 10 weeks on just those few verses alone. There's so much here, but, but here's what Paul is pointing out. And if this is your first time in church, or if you're just kind of kicking the tires of Christianity, this is a perfect weekend. You strip everything else away from Christianity. This is Christianity at its core. Here's what Paul's saying. When we believe in Jesus Christ, when we begin to be his followers, three things happen in our lives. And I think that we tend to concentrate on the first one and we miss the other two or avoid the other two. First of all, your sins and your mess ups and your mistakes are freely and fully forgiven and you are reconciled back into a relationship with God. You have a restored relationship with him. Sin used to block the way to that, but now that it's removed, you are now part of God's family. You are his son or his daughter. Mike used this illustration during the first week of the prodigal series. He says, this is you like a quarter. This is Jesus. And the moment of your salvation, you are in Christ. You are covered in or united with Christ. And because of that, how God feels towards his son, that's how he feels towards you. Does God love his son? Yeah, and now he loves you because you're in him. That's the first thing. That's what we talked about last week. But two more things happen. Secondly, the moment that you are united to Christ, the moment that that quarter goes into that hand, the old you or the sinful you, that part of you that really wants to sin and rebel against God, that part of you dies. Just like Jesus died on the cross, so the old you dies. God literally kills it. That's what Paul says. You have, you've died to sin. You used to be deeply connected to sin. In fact, you used to be in sin, united to sin. But now that you are in Christ or united in him, all connection that you used to have with sin is now severed. And then thirdly, again, and this happens the moment that you believe, in that moment, your sins are forgiven, the old you dies, and now a new you is created. You literally become a new person. Not only are you now a son or a daughter of God, but you also have new desires, desires that you've never had before. You have new tastes. You have new dreams, new hopes, new potentials, new purposes, new everything. You used to want to sin, and now you don't, and you're like, I'm pretty sure I still do. We're going to get there in a second. But you used to want to uh, use other people for your selfish gain. Now you want to serve other people and love other people. You used to uh, have dreams of being famous and recognized or praised. Now you want Jesus to have all of that. You are a brand new person. That's what he says in verses 5 through 7. He says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Skip down to verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's talking about these three realities that happen when we accept Jesus. And this is not just in this chapter. It's all over the Bible. Probably a famous verse that you'll know is 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And so Paul's saying that these three things happen the moment that you trust in Christ. You are forgiven the old you dies and the new you takes its first few breaths. And now you can kind of see the logic of what Paul's talking about here. Why not continue to sin if we get unlimited forgiveness? Well, it's because we've died to sin. 
and we're now a new person that doesn't want to or like to or need to sin. So this question, why not sin so that grace may abound, it doesn't make any sense at all if you understood what has happened to you at salvation. Can a butterfly go back to being a caterpillar? No. It can try, but it's not going to work because it's a new type of creature. Can a frog jump back in a pond and, and, and go back to being a tadpole? No. It has lungs. I think. My biology is not too good, but maybe it doesn't. But it can't live its whole life underneath that pond or lake because that's not its home anymore. It's a new type of creature. So why not take advantage of God's grace and keep sinning? It's because you have died to sin and you're a brand new creation. That, that, that question makes no sense. And when Paul's explaining this new reality, he brings up baptism. He says, this is what baptism symbolizes. When you go down into the water, it's a symbol of the old you dying. And when you come up out of the water, it's a symbol of the new life that you have in Jesus. So this is what the Bible says is true about you if you are a Christ follower. If you are following after Christ, this is what the Bible says has happened. To which a lot of us want to respond and said, ah, I think I might have missed a memo or something. Like, I'm hearing the words that you're saying, Chase, but that's not been my experience as a Christ follower. Maybe the day that I got saved, the angel uh, that's in charge of killing my old self was sick, and maybe the angel that was in charge of giving me a new life was on vacation because I don't feel like I've experienced that in my life. Forgiveness, I got, kind of, but that whole death and new life, it sounds awesome, but I don't really feel that reality. Anybody feel that tension? Raise your hand. Yeah, that's a lot more of you than are raising your hand currently. Yes. Okay. All of us feel this tension. Welcome to the club. We call ourselves the church. We meet here on the weekends. Like for real, for the past 2,000 years, every Christ follower has felt that tension. Where over here, you have these amazing truths that God tells us has happened. Forgiveness, adoption into his family, the old us dying. We're a new creation. And then over here, we seem to have an entirely different set of truths. We still struggle to sin. A part of us still very much wants to sin. It seems like our old self is very alive and very active. And our Christian lives are, uh, seem to be lived in the messy reality in between those. You have what God says is true. You have what you feel, and our lives are lived in the tension between those two things. And I feel that tension. So what's the deal? Why is our lived experience, why, why doesn't it match up to the truths that God says is true about us? Well, let me try to explain this. And Mike talked about this so briefly during his first sermon in the Prodigal series, and I just had to unpack it a little bit more. Uh, Paul explains this tension in greater detail in Romans chapter 7 and 8. We don't have time to go there. So there's a few metaphors that have really helped me understand this tension and uh, help me out when I'm explaining it to other people. Um, I used to work at a Christian camp in the mountains. Uh, it was on Lake Lure. It's where they filmed Dirty Dancing. You ever seen that movie? Yeah. So it was on Lake Lure called Camp Lure Crest. And so I was a lifeguard growing up. So I was the aquatics director one year. I was, I was hot shot. But uh, I was over all the lifeguards. And we had a pool and we had a lake. And so one day we were getting our lakefront certification. So it's a different certification because a lake is very different than a pool. You can't see the bottom, all that sort of stuff. And so there is this dude training us named Michael J. And Michael J. was a bad dude. Like, he was crazy. He used to take people from juvenile detention into the Florida swamps for months at a time, and they would survive, and they would go through this rehabilitation process. So think like Crocodile Dundee. That's Michael J. So Michael J. is training us in the lake. We're all in this lake. 
And uh, as the training kind of starts, I look and I, I feel something swimming about two inches from my right arm. And I look down and it's not a fish. It is a snake. And it's not just any snake, it's a copperhead. And so if you're from North Carolina, you know those are one of the few venomous snakes that we have. And we're pretty sure it can strike underwater. So I just alert everyone and say, hey guys, copperhead right here near us. And so everyone starts freaking out, not Michael J. Michael J. grabs the tail of that snake and uh, creams that snake's head on a boat dock, stuns it, and then throws it up on shore. And we're like, okay, Michael's done this before. I think we're safe. And so he gets out on shore and takes a boat oar and chops that snake's head off. And then he says, hey, no one come out on shore. I have to bury this snake. And we're like, that seems a little sentimental. Like, you want to have a funeral for a snake? And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. That snake's dead. It just don't know it yet. And it's going to still continue to try to bite you. And sure enough, I looked over at that decapitated head, and it was still trying to bite. Fifteen minutes later, I looked over at that snakehead, and it's still trying to bite. Forty-five minutes later, the training is over, and I look over, and that snakehead is still biting, just a little bit slower now. And so at the end, Michael J. does get out, and he digs a hole. He buries that snakehead. He actually takes the rest of the snake, uh, removes the meat, and eats it for dinner, and then stretches the skin across his, uh, his doorpost. So, yeah, he's a bad dude. But... I remember that snake every time I read these verses because, listen, that snake is a perfect example of your sinful self. That's your old self. It's dead. It just doesn't know it yet. It acts like nothing has changed. It still takes over conversations in your head. It still steers you back to your old way of life. Paul says it in Romans 8. It's like an unwanted house guest that, that, that just won't leave. It's going to whisper in your ear every single moment of the day, especially early on in your early days of following Jesus. He's going to say, this is not how we used to do things. This Christian thing, that's not the real you. He's going to say, no, 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 don't listen to the Spirit. Listen to me. Obey me. He's going to say, you need to do this. You have to do this. There will never come a day when you'll be free from this. It'll say, remember that fun stuff we used to do? You owe it to yourself. Go do that again. No one will know. And all day, every day, it's whispering, it's talking, sometimes it's screaming at you. And the crazy thing is it just takes one slip up, one time of giving in to what it wants. And it's really obvious how much of a liar it is. Remember, you're a new creation. You have different desires and different taste buds. So it just takes one night of drinking way too much or one time of telling your coworker off and you wake up the next morning and you think, why the heck did I do that? That was not fun. That was horrible. And then your old self will start in and be like, no, that was fun. You just did it wrong. Let's try to do it right this time. Let's do it today again. It's been put to death. Your connection with it has been severed. It just doesn't know it, and it certainly doesn't act like it. And not only does it still think that it's alive, it still thinks that it has power over you. It's like a pastor explained it like this. It's like if you were a member of a crew on a ship and uh, you signed up to, you needed some extra money to feed your family. And so you sign up for a voyage. Well, on the first voyage, it turns out uh, that the captain of that ship is really a pirate and now you're his slave. Surprise. So if you don't do what he says, he's going to kill you. And so all day long, he walks around the ship just barking orders. Swab the deck, hoist the sail, kill this prisoner, set the anchor. And for months, you know that you have to obey that captain or your toast. Well, one day, the Coast Guard intercepts that ship and takes over the crew and tells everyone that the captain has been arrested. You're no longer slaves. You're free. But the prison on board's full. And so that, that captain is going to be walking around that ship every single day. But he holds no power anymore. He holds no authority. The Coast Guard captain does. He says, hey, look at me. I'm the captain now, right? So that first day of your new freedom, you know what's going to happen? 
that captain's going to get in your face and he's going to say, swab the deck sailor. And by instinct, you're going to go grab a mop or whatever instrument one swabs with and you're going to start swabbing, right? Because it's just old habit. He's going to say, set the anchor and you're going to run over to that anchor and put it down. Just by instinct, just by second nature. And the Coast Guard captain will uh, have to, on a number of times, go to the crew and say, hey guys, stop. You don't have to do what he says. I know he's a nuisance. He'll be gone soon. But remember, he has no power over you. He has absolutely no authority over you. That's what your old self is like. And later in this book, Paul says, you don't owe your old self anything. There's a new captain, the Holy Spirit, and it's going to take some time to recognize the Spirit's voice. Uh, you've been spending years with the demands of the flesh, and so, but you have to understand that that old self has absolutely no authority over you, right? And so I get it. I feel that tension. I know that the old you often feels like the real you. And it's so easy to continue to think that that part of you that desires to do bad things, that part of you that doesn't measure up and keeps on messing up and failing, that part of you that you try so hard to hide from God or from other people, that that is the real you, but it's not. That part of you is dead. It just doesn't know it yet. If you are a follower of Christ, you are a new creation, and that is the truest thing about you. And therein lies the battle of the Christian life. It's a battle to believe what God says is true, is really true. I think some of us are fighting the wrong battle. I think there's probably many of us that are still trying to clean up the old self. We're trying to make the old you more presentable and better behave, but that's the wrong battle. The battle that God has called you to is a battle to believe. When everything inside of you is telling that these truths that God has said aren't true, and all of your experience is pointing you that your old self, that's the real you, and what Christ calls us to do is to stop, to turn from that old self, and to believe that what God says is true or truer, and to live like that. The only command in these verses in Romans 6, verses 1 through 11, it's one word, count. Count yourselves dead to sin. Your translation might say to reckon or to consider what God calls us to do is that every time that old self rears its ugly head, every time it starts whispering in our ear, we're to stop, we're to realize that voice for what it is, the old dead self, to consider it dead and to believe what God says about you. It's a battle of belief. And I know this battle can be hard sometimes. You know, I've been a Christ follower for many years now, and it gets tough. And there's, there's been a few, a handful of times where I've turned to God and I've just asked him, why didn't you just remove the old self completely from me when I first started following Jesus? That would have made it a whole lot easier. Why did you leave this old self inside of me? And I've searched the scriptures, and unfortunately, we're not told. Um, I don't think it's because God's mean and wants to mess with us. Um, in fact, I know that's true because of the cross. I know that he loves me. I know that he wants what's best for me. I know that he works all things for the good of those who follow him, even uh, our struggle with our old self. Maybe it's so that we learn to rely on him more. Maybe it's so that we grow in humility or patience. Maybe it's so we understand the power from which he, he rescued us, the actual power of sin. Maybe it's so that we have more joy when we're finally done with this battle and we're living with him. So I don't know why he's done this, but I do know that every single person is fighting this battle on a daily basis, this battle to believe. 
And here's the thing. You know what I think? I think when it comes to this battle, I think we radically overestimate the power of our old self and we underestimate the power of the Spirit. Like if I were to ask you right now, I'm not going to, so this is rhetorical, don't answer it. But if I were to ask you, hey, after you get saved, are you going to continue to sin? Every single person in here would say, yep, absolutely, of course. Of course we're going to continue to sin. I think we're too quick to answer that question. The Bible doesn't answer it that way. In the Bible, there's always a pause, and then it's like the biblical authors just say, I, I hope not. But if we do, you know, we can still be forgiven because of Jesus. The, the author of 1 John says this, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father whose name is Jesus. Um, when I was growing up, I was in these things called accountability groups. If you don't know what it is, let me explain what it is. It's where two or three guys meet together every week, and the leader says, hey, did you mess up this week? And you go, yeah, what about you? And he says, yeah, big time. And the third guy says, okay, let's pray. And then you leave, and then you come back the next week, and he, the leader says, you mess up big time this week? You say, yeah. You say, what about you? And the guy says, yeah, me too. Okay, let's pray. That's an accountability group. It's just over and over and over again. So that's, that's my experience with this stuff. But later in life, I was 29 years old. I was actually training to plant a church. And uh, it was a bunch of us pastors around a table, and there's this older pastor named, uh, we'll call him Neil. That's his real name, but we'll call him that too. But um, <laughs> I remember sitting around this table, and uh, Neil just mentioned that he used to struggle really hard with lust, which is a very common struggle uh, with men and with women. And he said when he was in his early 20s, he had had enough. And uh, he had read a verse uh, in Job where Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look lustfully upon a woman. And he made that his life verse for a while. So imagine putting that on a coffee mug and carrying it around the office. But that's what he did. And so he said he, he absolutely did stumble. He did stumble for a while, especially early on. But then he said after a few months, something just changed inside of him. And he looked at us pastors and he said, guys, I have been free from that battle for 20 years. And I remember everyone just kind of being shocked. Like, is that even possible? And he wasn't bragging or anything. You could tell in the way that he said it that it, he knew it wasn't because of his willpower or his perseverance. He just to chose to believe what God said was really true. He chose to believe that God could free him of that, and he lived like that, and God did. God freed him of that. And I think that most of us in this room have just been refusing to believe that that can happen to us. Like, it's an impossibility, but it's not. You know what some of my favorite verses are right now? I'm in a weird phase of my life. My early 30s were all about achieving and kind of doing stuff for God, and I realized I can get unhealthy. And so the past few years, especially since moving back here, have all been about like being the type of person instead of doing. There's a, there's a handful of verses that I've just clung to the past few months, and these are verses that a lot of people don't like uh, because they're verses that if you did not know what Paul taught in Romans 6, if you did not know that the old you is dead and that you are a new creation, then these verses are very hard to hear. In fact, I think that they could crush you under the weight, but maybe you'll hear them differently now. They're just a few verses out of 1 John. 1 John 3, 5 through 6 says, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. 
Later it says this, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed or spirit remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. I cling to these verses. This is not, you have to be perfect once you're saved. That's not what these verses are saying, but they are saying that you will not continue in habitual sin forever. And that is good news to a sinner like me. I hate my sin. I hate that I still rebel against God. And I struggle with pride and selfishness. And the sweetest thought that I can have is one day I'm going to wake up and commit my last sin. And then I'll be free from it for eternity and the new heavens and, this earth and the new earth. That's what these verses are saying, that God is actively changing us. That we can have hope that we won't continue in this forever. These verses aren't holding up a standard that you should feel bad about for not meeting. These are promises that God will continue and finish the work that he started in you. These aren't meant to make you feel shame or guilt because they don't describe your current experience right now. They're meant to fill you with hope for the future. These are amazing promises. When you've been stuck in the same destructive habit or cycle for 15 years and you wake up and say, I, I wish more than anything I can be done with this, you can have hope that one day you will. When you and your spouse are fighting and have been for a while and it doesn't seem like it's getting better and you need them to change, you know that you need to change and it just feels hopeless. Listen, God can do a powerful work inside of you and your spouse and your marriage. Philippians 1.6 says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Maybe you have a son or daughter and you raised them in the church and they profess to be a Christ follower, but right now they have walked so far away from God. And you're just watching from the sidelines thinking you are just one more mistake away from ruining your life. You can read these verses and have hope. We just went through the story of the prodigal son. What happened to that son eventually? He came home. Saul, the persecutor of the church, becomes Paul. Thomas, the doubter, believes Peter, the denier of Jesus, becomes instrumental to the early church. There are alcoholics in this room right now and all of our campuses that don't drink anymore. There's former drug addicts that have become pastors. There's marriages that have been restored. There are prideful people that have been made humble, hopeless people who have been set free. And it has nothing to do with them and everything to do with the power and the faithfulness of our God. The old you is dead. You are a new creation. God is at work in you, and that is the truest thing about you. Your battle is to believe that. And this is where baptism comes in. And just so you know, um, baptism is never portrayed as this optional thing that we can choose to do or not to do. Jesus commands you, if you have put your faith in him, after that point of salvation, to go and be baptized. And one of the reasons is because baptism is a powerful weapon in the battle of belief. Like when your old self rears its ugly head and starts to whisper, you deserve this, right? You owe it to yourself to do this. Or when it lies to you and says, who do you think you are? You're not a Christ follower. You're not saved. Look how bad you are. You should feel ashamed for yourself. Or when it says, you'll never change when it says you are stuck, this is who you are forever. When your old self begins acting up and speaking lies, you can simply stop. You can go back to that moment where you went down into the water 
and you came back up again and you can say, no, those are lies. You died. I left you in those baptismal waters. I'm a new creation. I'm a child of God. I have his power and his life living in me. This conversation's over. So your baptism and the memory of it is a weapon that you can use in the battle of belief every single time your old self starts to tell you lies. Your baptism grounds you or attaches you to what is really true about you. It's a lifeline that you can go back to again and again. I think it's more than that, but it's not less than that. And that's why Jesus commands us to do this, because we need this in our battle to believe. Let's bow and pray. Father, thank you for this reminder. I pray um, for those that are in this room that are just weary with the battle. I pray for those that have just gotten beaten up. Um, Would you give them strength? Would you renew their fight? Father, would you remind us of your faithfulness? (laughs) When everything that we see is our weakness, when everything that we see is our old dead self, I pray right now here in this moment, would you lift up our heads? (laughs) Would you remind us of your faithfulness and your goodness? We are free. We're no longer slaves. God, we believe. Would you help our unbelief? (laughs) And it is in the beautiful name of our Savior Jesus we pray. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message. We are so excited to be a small part of all the great things that God is doing in and through your life. If you would like to take the next step in your spiritual journey, download the Hope app to find out ways to connect, opportunities to serve, and other resources. And if you'd like to contribute financially to our vision of reaching the triangle and changing the world, visit us at gethope.net slash giving. Thank you for your commitment to resourcing hope as we love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus.